This is episode 211 of the Prepper Website Podcast, where I connect you with resources that will help you live a more self-reliant life. Today's articles are Stupid Active Killer Advice and Preparing for Infectious Diseases. Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily curation of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hey, welcome to episode 211. If uh, you've been hanging with us for a while, uh, thanks for coming back. And if you are new to the Prepper Website Podcast, uh, welcome and I hope you find all the preparedness information you're looking for. We're going to go ahead and jump right into the articles today. Our first article comes to us from ActiveResponseTraining.net. Again, ActiveResponseTraining.net. And Greg uh, does a great job of providing feedback and advice and uh, information off of different articles that he's finding and uh, personal experiences. And uh, in this specific article, he is dealing with or he is um, disagreeing with one portion of uh, of the book that he's read. So uh, again, like I said, let's go ahead and jump right into it. I just finished the book, Be a Hero. It was a very good book, full of useful information about how to successfully survive an active killer attack. There was one section, however, which I profoundly disagree. The author talks about setting off fire alarms, breaking bottles full of slippery liquids in hallways, and activating building sprinkler systems to slow the killer's progress. The book actually states, wet floors, this is a quote, wet floors are slippery floors. The active shooter will be slowed down by the water on the surface. These effects may only be marginal, but they will be significant, end quote. I've already written about why it's a horrible idea to set off fire alarms in an active shooter situation. Unfortunately, now I must disagree or discuss the dangers of making the floor slippery. It's a really dumb idea. I'm all for doing whatever you can to slow a killer down as he moves through a building hunting for targets to shoot. Slippery stuff on the floor might slow down a killer enough to have a positive effect on the scenario. Unfortunately, pouring soapy water on the floor will also hinder two other populations of people trying to move in a scenario like this. The victims and the cops. I'm going to ask you all to put your thinking caps on and answer the following questions. In an active killer event, you have three different groups of people, the killers, the victims, and the first responders. Of those three populations, which group needs to be able to move the fastest? Which group can accomplish its goal with minimal movement? And whom are you harming by pouring slippery stuff on the floor? The killer armed with a gun has the ability to project force at a distance. He doesn't need much movement to kill people. All he has to do is find a group of victims and start firing. From a stationary firing position in a classroom, office, or hallway, he can mow down dozens of victims without a need for much movement. Victims need to move the most. If the victims are unarmed, their most successful strategy is usually to escape the building where the shooting is happening. The victims need to move and they need to move fast. When you pour soapy water on the floor, you are impeding their escape. Additionally, most active killers have historically been young and fairly fit males. Victims have ranged from small children to elderly and handicapped folks. 
Which population is most likely to be slowed by water on the floor? A fit male can make his way across a slippery floor far easier than an elderly person or someone on crutches. The final population you are affecting is the group of cops and medics who will be responding to the scene. The cops will be moving as quickly as possible trying to locate and engage the killer. Do you want to slow them down? Historically, these active killers have continued shooting until they encounter effective resistance. At that point, they tend to surrender, flee, or kill themselves. Unfortunately, until more schools and workplaces employ armed staff, the most likely source of effective resistance is going to be the responding cops. Anything that delays police response will increase the number of bodies the killer racks up. After the killer is neutralized, we still have the problem of treating and evacuated the wounded victims. The slippery floors don't magically become clean once the shooting stops. How would you like to be the medic carrying a critically injured patient on a litter over slippery floors? Every time those medics fall, a patient has a chance of dying. Slippery floors delay the medical response and will likely increase the casualty rate. The bottom line is this. Slippery floors might slow down the killer. They will definitely hinder victim escape. Slow police officers closing in on the killer and delay medics trying to evacuate the injured. Don't spill slippery stuff on the floor of an active killer scene. You will be doing more harm than good. Alright, so not a very long post, but one that uh, is... You, know, you you need to have that in mind and play, put that in mind because a lot of the times I, I know that we had conversations some, similar to this like when um, we talked about on the campus uh, if when we talked about active shooter drills and, and different like things like that people talked about how can we for instance one teacher like how can we alert everyone that something bad is going on or get them out of the building and it's like pull the fire alarm the problem is, is that if you do that, you don't know where all the shooters are. You don't know uh, how uh, things are progressing. You don't know what it's like in one area of the building. People might think there's a fire. Uh, they might not hear shooting or anything like that. They hear fire and they all of a sudden, uh, because when we had a fire, Joel, we had people coming uh, you know, from all the exits. So we, I mean, we had a planned exit strategy that got everybody out of the building as fast as possible. So they were going every which way and so you don't want people coming if the if the active shooter is in the front of the school you don't want them coming to the front of the school and so you know we had to kind of talk through those things because sometimes people are like okay hey they're thinking in one you know like hey we need to get everybody out of the building as fast as possible how can we alert them the other side of that is you know they're they're not thinking about the possibility that you know, the active killer or the active shooter is going to be, you know, in the front of the school and all the other things that, that go into play uh, on those. And so as, a, as an administrator, we would kind of think through those things and like, well, wait a minute, we can't do this. We, you know, we should do this. And that's why early on, we, you know, I, I talked with the teachers. I'm like, you guys, y'all are professionals. Y'all have degrees. Y'all are smart. Y'all need to make the best decision that you can. We talked about fight, run, hide uh, way before the district Im implemented that or a year before the, the district implemented that. And just to kind of let you know, teachers know, I mean, y'all need to, to make decisions. You can't, you can't be sitting around you know, waiting for you know, just, just cowering in fear. You've got to, to make the decisions to protect your students and to get, get them out of harm's way as, as, as much as possible, you know, making the best decisions that you can with what information you have. 
So, uh, you know, there might be people out there well-meaning and like, hey, this might be a good idea. We're slowing the, the active shooter down without thinking through all the process. And, and uh, so that's why it's good to have scenarios like this. And that's why I like activeresponsetraining.net. I like, you know, he usually brings out a lot of the scenarios and, and kind of gets you thinking on those, on, on those aspects. So uh, uh, good one there. There are... Uh, there are links to other articles that he, like he said, he's mentioned before about pulling the fire alarm and other links that you can go check out. Um, so I uh, welcome you to go do that. All right, so our next article comes to us from survivalblog.com. Um, this, one is a, this one is a really good one on infectious diseases. And so uh, I, really, I was really looking forward to reading this one. Uh, and uh, some information, you know, because re- recently we talked a little bit about Madagascar and uh, the, the bubonic plague that was going on over there. And this article gives us a little bit because things have died down. You haven't really heard too much of it. But this article kind of gives us uh, kind of like a, a warning to behave, be, on the, be on the lookout. So let's dive right into this one. Again, this is at survivalblog.com, uh, preparing for infectious diseases. While there are many good articles out there on preparing for pandemics, there is little information that really breaks down infectious diseases and how to alter your actions depending on the disease. There are also conflicting reports on exactly what actions to take and if when to take antibiotics and in what dosages. I hope this article will provide you with the tools you will need to decide what actions to take. This article will cover some basic infectious disease terms and patterns and then two resources you can use to decide what actions to take and when. When talking pandemics, you really, you're really talking about the spread of infectious diseases as opposed to the other types of diseases such as deficiencies, genetic, and physiological. Infectious diseases are caused by bacteria, viruses, fungi, or parasites. While many of these organisms live in and on our bodies at all times, rarely causing problems, some can cause a range of minor irritations all the way up to death. Bacteria are single-celled organisms responsible for illnesses such as strep throat, urinary tract infections, and tuberculosis. Viruses are smaller than bacteria, causing a range of diseases from the common cold up to AIDS. Fungi... Uh, I can get that out. Fungi induce many skin diseases such as ringworms, athlete's foot, and can infect your lungs or nervous system. Parasites can be transmitted through bites or feces such as malaria obtained from a mosquito bite. Knowing which of the four ways a disease spreads can be important when stopping an infection. The spread of infectious disease. Infectious diseases can be spread through direct or indirect contact. Direct contact is what you would expect person-to-person, animal-to-person, or mother-to-unborn child. Indirect contact can include germs lingering on a surface, insect bites, or food-water contamination. We usually hear of diseases in terms of endemic, epidemic, or pandemic. An endemic disease is something that exists naturally in an environment, for instance, malaria in Africa sometimes becomes an epidemic when a statistically significant number of people, more than normal, catch a disease within a short period of time. It reaches pandemic levels when it jumps to multiple countries and is spreading worldwide. The Waves of an Infectious Disease 
Another important fact to know when dealing with infectious diseases is that they generally come in three waves. The first wave is the initial number of cases which climbs to a certain number and then starts to, to diminish. Everyone generally becomes aware, takes action, cases get fewer, and people breathe a sigh of relief. The problem then is that in about one to six months after the first wave, a second much stronger wave of cases will break out. The disease has now become used to humans and human-to-human -human transmission and is generally stronger and lasts longer. The second wave is then followed by a smaller and weaker third wave. Most infectious diseases cases, and indeed all three major influenza pandemics of the 20th century, follow this three-wave pattern. So when you hear of disease X spreading in country Y, and immediately the government or governments, WHO or CDC, etc., leap into action and assure everyone the disease is under control, watch and wait for that second wave. Then, after the second wave, things should start to calm down. So responding to the spread of infectious disease. So now the disease X is spreading, what are you to do? There are two references I go to immediately when I hear something might be spreading. One is a reference manual, which is a bit pricey at just under $60, but it's worth it. The other is a free PDF provided here. So there is a link for that free PDF. Reference manual. The reference manual I use is Control of Communicable Disease, Diseases Manual, edited by David Hyman, MD, from APHA Press. Mine is the 20th edition. This reference manual has all the major and many minor infectious diseases listed and includes everything you'll need to know about them. It lists clinical features, how the disease presents in the form of symptoms, etc., agents, how it spreads where it lives normally, and how to diagnose it, transmission, incubation periods, prevention, and treatment. Another important tidbit to know is the incubation period. A person will become infected. There will be an incubation period where the disease will spread and react with the person. And then at some point, that person will start showing signs of being sick and will also start being contagious. You need to know how long that incubation period is or how long should someone stay isolated before you know if they're sick. At what point and for how long they will become contagious and how long do you need to treat them. This manual will tell you all of this. The Siegel Table. The second reference is what I call the Siegel Table. It's officially titled Guidance for Isolation Precautions Preventing Transmission of Infectious Agents in Healthcare Settings 2007. Mine is the 2007 version. This table lists the diseases, what precautions need to be taken, and for how long. There are four types of precautions categories possible. Airborne, droplet, contact, and standard. Standard precautions. These are the minimum precautions recommended at all times in management of patients in healthcare settings. These include washing hands, good hygiene, cough, sneeze etiquette, safe handling of contaminated equipment, safe injection practices, and the basic personal protective equipment or PPE, which includes gloves, gown, and masks. Contact precautions. Contact precautions are taken for diseases that spread by touching the patient or items in the room such as MRSA, diarrheal illnesses, open wounds, etc. 
These precautions include wearing a gown and gloves while in the room, removing these items before leaving the room, and washing hands or using sanitizer afterward. This also requires a strict awareness of what items might be contaminated and then cleaning and controlling those items. Droplet precautions. Droplet precautions are needed when a disease is spread via tiny droplets from coughs, sneezes, or other body fluids. This includes wearing a surgical mask and cleaning hands before and after working with the patient. Airborne precautions. Airborne precautions are the most restrictive and are needed for very small germs spread through the air. This requires a patient be in a room where the airflow is strictly controlled. In a medical setting, this would be a negative pressure room where air can come in but not go out. In a home setting, this would be hard to do in a standard house with normal airflow. This is also where you would need an N95 or higher rated respirator while in the room. Clean hands and ensure the patient wears a mask while around others or, or leaving the room. The Madagascar Plague Now that you are aware of these resources and basic information on infectious diseases, let's walk through a currently ongoing real-world example. The past fall, certain news sources started reporting on a plague outbreak in Madagascar. I was somewhat surprised this didn't become bigger news, especially in prepper circles. I realized reading through comments that many people didn't have a good grasp of the information in this article. Frequently, when they got to the point in the news article about the plague being endemic to Madagascar, they moved on and wrote it off as no big deal. So let's examine the situation a little closer. Endemic plague spreads to epidemic level. The plague, Yersinia pestis, is indeed endemic to the jungles of Madagascar, where the bubonic form is spread via flea from animal to animal. Incidentally, the bubonic form was what kicked off the Black Death. Madagascar normally has a small bubonic plague season on a yearly cycle, much like the American flu season. It is usually the bubonic form spread to villagers who live near the jungles and is usually tracked and controlled. This past fall, however, their normal plague cycle became an epidemic and caught international attention due to several deviations from normal. The bubonic form did infect patient zero, but it then transformed into the pneumonic form. If you check the Hyman manual, you will learn that the plague has three forms, bubonic, pneumonic, and septicemic. The bubonic form transformed into pneumonic plague and spread. The bubonic is what is stereotypically thought of when thinking of the plague, spread by fleas. Pneumonic plague can be transferred human to human via droplets. Septicemic is when the disease gets into the blood and spreads to other body parts. In this case, the pneumonic form started spreading and made its made it all the way to the capital city of Antananarivo, where it spread like wildfire. Incidentally, Antananarivo is where their, their international airport is and has been operating daily flights in and out of the country throughout this whole time. While the local news was reporting on schools closing, universities closing, prison lockdowns, and so forth, the international community and the World Health Organization was assuring everyone that the situation was totally under control. The controlled treatment with antibiotics and vaccines. They're partially right. 
In today's modern world, the plague, if caught in time, can be treated with antibiotics and is no longer the deadly nightmare that it was centuries ago. China made big news by working with the WHO to donate 1.2 million doses of a vaccine within the first month of the outbreak. The World Bank released 5 million to help with the response and the Red Crescent started running dedicated ambulances just for plague victims. Here's a fun fact. The U.S. does not currently have an FDA-approved plague vaccine, though one is apparently in the works. First wave subsiding and second more severe wave expected. Recently, the news surrounding the plague has subsided because as mentioned above, the first wave of cases is subsiding. Since August 1, 2017, Madagascar has recorded 2,348 confirmed cases with a fatality rate of 8.6%. If you look at the WHO chart of cases here, you will see that the first wave has certainly peaked and we are on the low swing. Those of us with infectious disease knowledge are patiently waiting for the second, more severe wave that should be coming sometime within the next few months. I won't say I'm worried, but rather just alert. While there are certainly antibiotics and vaccines readily available and existing, with the pneumonic spreading plague, I have to wonder if we have enough antibiotics and vaccines to treat every person in our very globalized world. Do we? I don't know. I also wonder how fast will the pneumonic plague develop antibiotic resistance like many other diseases are currently doing. Will it take 10 years or 20 years? What do we do? What I am doing in this situation, as with any infectious disease situation, is checking my two references. By checking the Hyman text, I familiarized myself with the disease's transmission, symptoms, incubation period, and most importantly, treatment. So the treatment. The manual tells me that I can treat the plague with several different antibiotics. Streptomycin, adults, 2 grams a day and 2 equal dosage. Gentamicin, 3 milligrams a day in 3 equal doses, or tetracycline, 2 grams a day in 4 equal doses, for 7 days. It also tells me how long the incubation period is and how long a person is contagious, for 48 hours after the start of antibiotics. By checking the Siegel table, I learned that droplet precautions should be taken and that chemical prophylaxis should also be provided to members living in the same household. Hyman also tells me which antibiotics and dosages for those family members. With this information, I can be informed and forewarned about what actions I might need to take to protect my family and what antibiotics I might need to procure before any possible panic or run on medication. Other situations. These types of precautions can and should be taken with any situation that might arise in today's connected world. Some other current examples include the Marburg and Ebola viruses in Africa and several different influenza strains that are currently circulated. Hyman covers various kinds. Hopefully this article gives you some more background on infectious diseases and some tools that you can use to protect your family. All right. So uh, like I said, this is over at Survival Blog. There's a lot of commenting, about 17 comments here. Um, some different uh, links that you can click on. Um, but definitely, uh, you know, that PDF that that's linked here, I think you want to go get that one and look into this this one manual that he was talking that was edited by David Hyman. I think that's, you know, that would be something that would uh, that might be interesting to have 
if uh, you know you you want to make sure that you are good on this one. Uh, this Siegel table is about 21 pages long, and um, man, it looks like it's got some really good information here. It's laid out. Um, so this this is one that you might want to uh, not necessarily print out. I mean, unless you want you know all 21 pages, but definitely one of those that you might want to put in a like an e-binder. Um, we've talked about that before. You know, have like an electronic binder or flash drive where you're downloading you know PDFs and books and those kinds of things so that you have those if you ever needed those. But it's very interesting. I, I never really was up on the, the different waves of infectious diseases. And so if that's, if that's correct um, with what's going on in Madagascar, I mean, you know, we should be hearing something pretty soon about, you know, what's going on over there. Like he said in this article in the next couple of months. So that'll be interesting. I know that we have talked about um, Madagascar before on the podcast. Uh, and um, but you know the thing is is that you don't want to be an alarmist and freak everybody out because it hadn't jumped at that time. It was it's pretty much staying in Madagascar, so it's an epidemic. But uh, it, you know it 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 got pretty crazy there because it did it went and like I said earlier in in previous podcasts when we talked about this, it went into the more wealthy parts of the country where in the past it was always in the poor parts now it went into the to the healthy parts and so i thought it was very interesting that uh, their bu their bubonic plague period is kind of like our flu i mean can you imagine uh you know we hear the bubonic plague and and we immediately start equating that with you know millions of people dying for them it's like hey it's the flu right uh, you get a little sick you know get it treated with some antibiotics you'll be good that's crazy. It's just uh, it's amazing how the how different in different parts of the world, different things, uh, you know, are uh, how how they just how they just transpire. So good information here. I think this is always one of those, you know, pandemics is one of those things that always are lurking in the back of your mind. Uh, at least for me, when I start seeing things happening in other other parts of the country, you know, I or other parts of the world. I want to kind of keep a, an eye on those types of things and uh, make sure that you know I'm I'm keeping aware. Um, a lot of people would say, you know, hey, go go check out the you know the this government website or this website, and I'm like, you know, I I, I don't know. I I just I would rather I, I would check out those government websites, but at the same time, just be cautious. Keep you know. Keep uh, your eyes open and, and, and all those kinds of things. Um, like I've said before on the pat in the past, um, the one thing that kind of got my wife uh, focused on preparedness was watching that uh, that Discovery Channel uh, documentary on uh, After Armageddon. So it's a it was a drama documentary, whatever. Um, but anyway, so that's it was you know follows a family. Uh, after a pandemic, it just kind of ravages the country, and so that kind of got her, uh, you know, thinking about all of this. And so, pandemic is one of those things that it's always in the back of my mind. But good article over here at Survival Blog. Like always, if you get a little bit of time, and we link to all these the websites uh, or the articles in the show notes, and uh, going and checking out the the comments are always very beneficial. There's always a lot of you know, when there's a lot of comments, there's always good stuff there that would be very helpful to 
to uh, to read and people giving more advice and information on that. So again, that's over at survivalblog.com. So a little bit shorter podcast today. So I hope uh, I hope you don't mind that. But I think there was some really great information. Again, I, I encourage you to go visit the websites that we include in the show notes. And if you're always if you're looking for more preparedness information, we do have some really great articles. Uh, always posting great articles on Prepper website. And even at that, we have pages uh, that are dedicated to you know specific things. So like frugal living, uh, if you're into firearms, if you're into alternative news, even if you're into conspiracy theories, you know we have those uh, you know art- or pages that are kind of dedicated to that. That uh, all the articles or the you know they pull from websites that uh, will fulfill whatever that page is talking about. So there's always great, great stuff over there at PrepperWebsite.com. And uh, if you haven't listened to some of the past episodes of, of uh, the Prepper Website podcast, uh, you know, I, I hear from, from those of you that are like, Todd, I, I've caught up on all the, all the podcasts. I'm like, wow, man, it's like 211. That's a lot. And uh, man, that's, that's, that's really awesome. But if you are new, I mean, we have 210 other podcast episodes that you can go check out. And uh, hopefully they'll be just as beneficial as this one was to you. All right, guys. So with that, choose to live a more self-reliant life. Choose not to be so dependent on the government grid or the grind. Until tomorrow, stay prepped and aware. Peace.